0: UK investors seeking income have historically had a preference for the home market, but over recent years, funds offering exposure to global or overseas equity income have proven that if you look further afield, you can get an attractive income and strong long-term total returns. A case in question has been BNY Mellon Global Income Fund, which over the decade that today's guest, James Harries, ran it, made total returns well ahead of broad indices such as MSCI World and many of its global equity income peers. James left the fund in 2015 and joined Troy Asset Management, where he now runs Trojan Global Income Fund, which launched in 2016. James, there are a number of different approaches that you could take to running a global equity income fund. So what is your stock selection approach with your current fund, Troy Trojan Global Income?
1: Well, thank you very much indeed. Troy, we um, are very careful about the businesses in which we invest. We have a high emphasis on quality, and by that we mean return on capital employed. And the starting point, therefore, for when we're choosing businesses in which to invest is our what we call our universe. We have about 220-ish companies globally who we've built up over the 20 years that Troy's been in existence, uh, which we think are worthy of giving our clients money to, ascribing our clients money to, if you like. So the starting point is effectively the universe. Now, that isn't actually static. Companies do come into the universe and go out of the universe. Now, um, you were kind enough to point out I've been managing money on this basis for quite a long time. In fact, I would argue longer than anyone else in London. Uh, and there are therefore lots of businesses I know and have, have followed over the years. So when we decide that there's a new business that isn't yet in our universe, that we would like to put into our universe, we will do a sort of quick look at it to ensure that it is of the sort of quality that we want to uh, uh, continue to look at or spend some time on. And then either Tomasz Boniek, who helps me, manage the fund, or a number of the member of the team will then go and spend a long time, uh, two or three months, digging very deeply into the attributes of that business. And they were trying to answer one question effectively, and that is, is this business good enough for our clients to invest in? And how we do that is by trying to discern what are the returns on capital being? Can we identify why they've been good? Are they likely to continue to be good and to persist? Uh, how are the management team incentivized? How is that business allocated capital over time? Uh, and so on and so forth. And that will be put into a substantial note, which we will then present to the investment team. We collectively will then decide whether or not that business goes into the universe. Now, once it has, sorry, just to finish, it's then my decision or the team's decision in terms of the Global Income Fund whether or not it goes into the portfolio, in what size and at what time, as it always has been.
0: Okay, so um, a very rigorous and detailed investment process, but how does it differ to the investment approach that you took at your former fund at Newton Investment Management?
1: So there are a couple of differences, I guess. Um, The first is that in the fund that I used to manage, we used to have what one might call a yield discipline. So we'd only buy companies that yielded a certain amount and we sell them at a different yield. That means that the, the yield that the the company offers becomes the primary means by which you decide whether to buy and sell. There's a couple of problems. I mean, that has some benefits. And obviously, I ran money in that way for a long time. And as you were kind enough, again, to point out quite successfully. But it, it, and it does encourage one to be somewhat contrarian. The best way to manage an income fund, after all, is to find good businesses and then buy them when they're out of favor. And therefore, they're relatively inexpensive and offer a decent income yield. The problem with that, of course, is if you own a business which happens to do well over the short term and you trip the yield sell trigger, if you like, then you become a forced seller of a business that actually you'd like to own for the next 10 years. So we've removed that yield discipline now because we think that it's inconsistent with the genuinely long term investment approach. The second thing, the key difference with a Troy portfolio relative to other portfolios is this high emphasis on quality. We want to be investing in businesses that are genuinely compounding capital over time. And that we think we can have some certainty about what the business will look like in five, seven and ten years time. We like to buy businesses we think will be bigger, heavier businesses with a degree of certainty. And therefore, when we buy a business, we want to buy it for the long term. Now, we can demonstrate empirically that we are very long-term investors. The turnover in our portfolios tends to be roughly 10% a year. Therefore, we tend to own businesses for for 10 years. Uh, And they tend to be relatively concentrated. So there's about 35, 36 companies in the portfolio I manage, uh, which is rather less than the portfolio I used to manage. So emphasis on quality, longer term, lower turnover, uh, and uh, um not using the dividend yield as the primary valuation metric but the evaluation of the underlying business
0: okay now i suppose um something that Um, I think people particularly associate with Troy Asset Management um, is a strong emphasis on wealth preservation, um, which um, obviously they've got funds, uh, perhaps like personal assets trust dedicated to, but which they take into consideration, I suppose, with other mandates as well. So how have you incorporated this emphasis on wealth preservation into your investment approach?
1: Well, there's a couple of points to make. First of all, um, I've admired Troy from afar for some time really for this reason because putting an emphasis on not losing people's money I think is probably the right way to approach what is inherently you know investing money in equities carries a degree of risk and I think doing it in a way that tries to emphasize quality and uh, and and protecting the downside is a sensible thing to do so it's also the way I've generally managed money for a long time I'm known as a relatively cautious and conservative investor and The performance I've generated over time demonstrates that as well. We tend to do particularly well when markets are more difficult and we keep up largely when markets are doing well. And over time, that produces very good risk-adjusted returns. The key point about Troy is that it's not at all driven by the benchmark. It's not driven by what's going on in the market. We simply try and buy or construct concentrated portfolios, inherently high-quality businesses that we like uh, and have reasonable holding sizes and periods. Uh, And that, therefore, takes you very much towards... The individual businesses rather than having an eye on benchmarks the key point in which though you in an equity context i believe avoid permanent capital loss which is really what we're talking about rather than short-term fluctuations or oscillations in the market which must be expected what you don't want is to have a business that falls and doesn't recover money's therefore gone to what we might describe as money heaven you're never getting it back and the way you do that is by investing in quality businesses. If a business is inherently compounding capital, if the underlying business is compounding capital, then you can avoid permanent capital loss uh, even over, with confidence, even if the market itself is oscillating and you suffer some periods of loss.
0: Okay. I mean, does um, incorporating um, this focus on wealth preservation prevent you from investing in stocks that you might have invested um, in with your last fund?
1: Well, there's two things to say. On the first point, are uh, uh, yes, there are some businesses that wouldn't meet the Troy criteria. Troy, as I've mentioned, Troy has a very high bar in terms of the quality of business in which we like to invest. And frankly, some of the businesses that I w- would have invested in the past w- w- won't meet that criteria. So, so yes, there are some businesses that we now wouldn't, uh, which I think is probably a good thing. But the second point is that we are at quite an interesting juncture in markets, in my, my view. We're 10 years into a bull market. We've had aggressive monetary policy throughout that period. And the whole point was, if we remember, is that we were supposed to have quantitative easing or other forms of monetary policy, which in turn were meant to augment activity and consumption and lead to a self-sustaining global economic recovery, at which point interest rates could recover or at least normalise to 3 or 4%, which is historically a much more normal number. Uh, The economy would become self-sustaining. The global financial crisis was just a bad dream and you can all carry on. Well, it hasn't really happened. First of all, it's, the authorities have found it extremely difficult to stop quantitative easing. Indeed, we've seen it put back in place in Europe and in Japan and so on. Secondly, we've seen the bond market remain extremely, um, shall we say, cautious. Rates are still very low. And we now have a yield curve, which has no yield and has no curve. It's the most extraordinary thing in a sense. And to me suggests that the outlook for growth in the global economy is somewhat sluggish. And I think that relates to a number of structural factors, debt, demographics, global competition, and, and so on. And what that's meant is that the authorities, in order to generate a modicum of growth and inflation in the real economy, have produced something that's not terribly moderate in the financial economy. I think asset prices are pretty full or fully priced. Um, and therefore, I think it's a time particularly for caution. So even within the context of Troy's relatively conservative approach, we're towards the cautious end of cautious at the moment, which leads us towards a particular type of portfolio, which we think would do well if things don't change, um, but which uh, doesn't incorporate some businesses which we'd love to own long term, but which we currently think are too expensive.
0: OK. Now, on the subject of performance, um, it's early days. Uh, Troy Trojan Global Income will only hit its third anniversary on the 1st of November. But how is it done so far? And is it where you want it to be?
1: Yes. So we we, we performed reasonably well. We, we had a bit of a faltering start, I have to say. It was, I'm not looking for any sympathy, but we launched uh, a few days before Donald Trump was elected to be the US <laughs> president. And it seemed to me the whole world slightly lost leave of its senses at that point, because there was a great deal of optimism that he would manage to restructure the year. US economy, and by extension, the global economy. And therefore, the sorts of more conservative businesses that we owned didn't do very well on a relative basis. And we also saw a high degree of optimism that the tax cuts that Donald Trump put in place would lead to a self-sustaining recovery, if you like. Now, that led to a period of underperformance just after we launched, which is a bit unfortunate, but there you are. I'm pleased to say things have rapidly improved since then. Our performance now has, has been dramatically better over the last 12 or 18 months. Uh, and as we hit the three-year number, um, it's looking reasonably good. Thank you for asking.
0: Your former firm, Newton, was a large firm. You've moved to smaller fatigue, I suppose. Newton is also known for running funds via a team approach. Um, and I suppose there's a lot of people there and they can do it. It's a big firm. So how does this differ to the setup at Troy Asset Management, which is obviously a, a much smaller firm?
1: So there are a couple of differences. I mean, the main difference is that Troy is very clear about what it's looking for. Troy has a very clear idea of the sort of business that it wants to invest in. Uh, and the, the the common factor will be, generally speaking, a high return on capital employed. And therefore, we have, as I mentioned, this universe of businesses which we know and which has been built up and which is monitored by the team. We have 12 on our investment team at Troy. Uh, furthermore, we have relatively concentrated portfolios and relatively low turnover. So the reality is that if we have a 35 stock portfolio, if turnover is 10%, then we're only needing three or four new ideas a year. Two of those probably are already in the universe and known to the team and we can buy at any time when the valuation is right. So we probably need one or two brand new ideas a year and we have a team of 12 and we know what we're looking for. So it's an extremely manageable task. Uh, and I would even go so far as to say that the amount of time spent on individual ideas and the depth and breadth of knowledge in the team of the businesses we own I could even argue is somewhat better than, than, than perhaps it was before. So we just generally think that it's very possible to, to manage money on this basis with a smaller but more focused team. Uh, I would also say, however, that the team is important at Troy. Although Newton used to emphasize the team approach quite correctly, I would do the same thing at Troy. As I say, we have a team of 12. We have a multi-asset uh, mandate. Um, and you may recall, I used to help manage a multi-asset mandate called the Real Return Fund at Newton. Uh, We have a UK income, which is obviously additive to a global income fund, and we have a core global equity fund. And all the team work together, uh, both in terms of monitoring the universe, but also coming up with ideas and generally being additive to the process. So it's a great place to work and to invest.
0: Okay, so would it be fair to say perhaps it's not that different then to the way you used to do things?
1: Other than what I mentioned, it Mm. being more quality focused, more concentrated, lower turnover and longer term, frankly.
0: Okay. Now, you said you do have good capacity, but I suppose on at Newton, you were able to draw on a very large bank of analysts. Is there any ways you can compensate for you know not having that large global multinational capacity as you had in a firm of that nature?
1: Well, the key point is by being very clear about what you're looking for, mm. as I mentioned. So we have a particular group of businesses which tend to reside in a particular group of sectors, which we favour and the knowledge of which Troy has built up as a team over a long period of time. And so, therefore, I think by being very clear about what you want to buy, the task of being across all of those businesses is actually extremely manageable. Uh, and I'd also say that there's one further point, that having a bigger team means that you, and being generally more benchmark-driven, means that you have to have a view on every sector. If you are more benchmark-driven, then every company in the index really is equally deemed equally worthy of investment. It simply comes down to price. But that's not actually right, is it? Because some businesses are inherently better than others. Some businesses actually compound capital, have higher returns on capital, uh, have higher returns on capital than others. And you should concentrate your efforts and importantly, your resources on those areas, and then be very patient and disciplined about when you buy those businesses. And that's, that is a characterization of the Troy process.
0: Okay. Now, Troy recently changed its investment policy of not allowing an investment to count for more than 6% of a fund's assets. Why?
1: Simply that we've always felt we don't have formal geographical sectoral constraints. As I mentioned, we tend to run pretty concentrated portfolios for the long term in high quality businesses and sectors that that we favour. We do also have to, of course, have adequate diversification in portfolios, and we're careful about that, as you would expect within the regulatory constraints of the funds that we manage. We did also have had, and still have actually, a constraint that we won't put more than 6% in any one individual business, which we just think is sensible. However, we will allow a business to grow to greater than 6% if it performs very well, but we won't then add to it. So a holding may exceed 6% somewhat and for a period but we're certainly not going to allow uh, a holding to get extremely large and in fact in the last 15 years 14 years and we manage money in this way i can only think of two occasions where a business exceeded that limit so uh it just gives us a bit more flexibility it means we don't become full sellers of businesses that we like and that we would like to run um, but we're certainly not going to let before it, portfolios become too concentrated
0: Okay. And I mean, do you expect that you'll allow any holdings in um, Trojan global income to go to more than 6% of assets?
1: I think if we have a a business that we have high conviction in and it then performs well, then yes, it may breach the or at least go through the 6% limit, but we won't then add to it. We'll Mm. allow it to perform. Um, So within the context, as I mentioned, of ensuring adequate diversification in the portfolio and not allowing individual holdings to get too large, we will allow businesses to run somewhat through that 6% limit, yes.
0: Okay, and have any current holdings that you see um, sort of like going down that route at the moment?
1: We don't have any that are close to the 6% Mm. limit and I can't tell you with perfect foresight, which ones are going to perform really well? So no, but it's possible.
0: Okay, um, I mean you've obviously set out your reasons, but you know even though you're not adding front to them, and you know even if it, they just get larger because they're doing well, I mean is there still not a risk that the fund might become too concentrated in individual holdings? Or perhaps if you know what if a few of them did really well and grew above six percent?
1: Well, there are limits to how concentrated mm. portfolios can be. Uh, uh, and they are set by the USITs rules or whatever rules come after we've left Europe. If we leave Europe, we perhaps shouldn't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so no, there are there, there are rules to which we would adhere, adhere as you would expect. Portfolios are monitored both um, pre-trade, post-trade, by compliance and so on and so forth. So, no, I don't think there is a risk that po- portfolios become overly concentrated. But we we do like to run relatively concentrated, relatively. Um, quality-focused businesses that reflect the fact that we have some high, quite high conviction in some individual businesses that we think will, can compound capital consistently over a long period of time. And so we're quite comfortable managing portfolios in that way. We're also very uh, aware of liquidity in the portfolio, and we, we have very high levels of liquidity in all our portfolios at Troy. Obviously, it's a pretty... Uh, relevant topic at the moment. I just want to make sure mm. people understand that and realise that.
0: You mentioned that um, a key difference between your current fund and your last fund is a policy on what sort of yield a stock has to have. Now, turning to the fund, it actually at the moment has a yield of 2.7%, which is perhaps lower than some equity income funds. I mean, why Why is this?
1: To answer your question, you get to the heart of what I think is an, is an absolutely core question at the moment, because we have seen a bifurcation, if you like, or a differing in terms of performance of different parts of the market. Notably, those businesses that could be deemed higher quality, higher return on capital employed, and those that tend to be more capital intensive and more cyclical, which generally we tend not to invest in, but which have become very much less expensive. Now, you can approach this in one of two ways. You can either do what we do, which is continue to be patient and cautious and invest in businesses which we think consistently compound capital. Or you can, in my eyes, heed the siren call, if you like, of selling those compounding businesses and buying much less expensive businesses, but which themselves are relatively uh, uh, cyclical and capital intensive, and therefore will not compound capital, i.e. they don't have high returns on capital. So you can buy a business that looks optically cheap, and the expectation becomes slightly less cheap, and then move on or you can continue to hold the high-quality portfolio. Now, that is, that is a conscious choice that we make as investors because we want to be holding businesses for 5, 10, 7, 10 years, which we think consistently compound capital, but which currently look rather more expensive than they have for some time. The reason we continue to hold them is, first of all, because of the quality of those businesses, and secondly, because we have a view that we think that interest rates are likely to stay pretty low, as I mentioned. We think that QE hasn't really worked. It's led to a great deal more indebtedness. hasn't led necessarily to a self-sustaining recovery. As soon as they tried to stop QE in the States, we saw volatility in the marketplace and a slowdown in the underlying economy. We see lots of structural reasons why inflation isn't apparent. Maybe it will be in the future if there's a big fiscal spend, but we don't know. And therefore, we think that if you look at a company like Unilever, for instance, which is trading on a 4.5% and growing free cash flow yield, that continues to look very favourable relative to a bond yield of whatever it is at the moment, very, very low in both the UK and the US. So, we are generating a yield of 2.7%. We're pretty confident that that will grow in real terms over time. We have some businesses, as I mentioned, that we'd love to own, some more, slightly more cyclical businesses, some market-related businesses, or some businesses that have bigger businesses in emerging markets, for instance, which we think we'll be able to buy at some point, which will in, in turn augment the expected return in the portfolio, the returns on capital in the portfolio, and the yield. But we don't think that we're being offered the opportunity to do that today. Now, we don't know when the opportunity set is going to improve. We suspect it will at some point. In fact, 10 years into a bull market, with the world apparently slowing, maybe the opportunity is about to present itself. Who knows? In the interim, we think that not reaching for yield or not investing businesses with inherently low quality in order to augment the yield, but thereby compromising the rate at which the underlying portfolio is compounding capital, is the right approach.
0: Sterling-based investors who deploy their money overseas have been subject to large currency swings over the past three years. Um, what effect has this had on Trojan global incomes returns and dividend payments and um, have you done anything about it
1: So there is a sterling effect, of course. this is a global portfolio which generates a yield in in sterling. so when sterling falls, overseas assets rise or at least are become more valuable uh, and have enabled the portfolio to perform pretty strongly in absolute returns in sterling terms and we've also grown the income over the relatively short period of um, track record of of the fund. Clearly, the opposite is also true. if sterling are to be very strong, then that will diminish the returns that investors garner from overseas. It's very hard to have a particular view on sterling today. It's very binary. I mean, if we do have a uh, uh, if we so called crash out or if we leave the European Union without a deal, then you could see sterling fall substantially. Similarly, if we were to be able to get the withdrawal bill through Parliament and have an orderly Brexit, or, or indeed no Brexit at all, then um, sterling could appreciate. And we are not minded to take a view on that. So. And that's over the short term. Over the longer term, we continue to be in a situation whereby the UK has both the current account and a fiscal deficit. It is hard to see that sterling is likely to be dramatically or structurally strong, albeit that it has got to a point where it's relatively inexpensive. So I still, I guess on a long term basis, I still think it makes perfect sense for investors to diversify some of their assets out of the UK in order to benefit from a diversification of currencies, as well as being access a range of very good businesses which aren't listed in the UK uh, and to accept that there will be currency fluctuations over time. On the last part of your question, we do not hedge our currencies. We don't hedge structurally back to sterling. We've thought about it over the years and we think giving the investors the opportunity to diversify out of sterling is one of the benefits of investing in a global fund and you would take that away if you were to hedge the currency.
0: Okay. I suppose on that note, though, um, at the end of September, the fund had more than a fifth of its assets in um, UK equities. Um, uh, Why have you decided to, um, you know, have this allocation when, you know, you could invest right across the world?
1: Essentially for two reasons. First of all, because the businesses which invest, generally speaking, are global businesses that happen to be invested in the UK. And therefore, the UK weighting, if you like, is optically higher than the underlying revenue. So although, as you say, close to 20% of the portfolio is invested in businesses that are listed in the UK, on an underlying revenue basis, only about 6% of the portfolio uh, actually derives from the UK. We've probably only got two no, probably one domestic, genuinely domestic business, which is Domino's Pizza. We like pizza businesses, and um, which is performing reasonably well at the moment. I'm pleased to say. Uh, otherwise, we invest in global businesses, and therefore, optically, the, the UK weighting is much higher than in fact it is.
0: Which sectors and stocks do you particularly like that are listed in the UK?
1: Yeah, so we have a, a range of, essentially, consumer staples businesses, healthcare businesses, uh, and one or two what you might say is particular idiosyncratic stock. Uh, uh, investments one of i mentioned is domino's pizza and another is ig group which we think is an excellent uh, um um, business and looks very inexpensive given the growth opportunities that business has In fact i've just spent the last hour and a half with ig groups management talking about these opportunities so we're pretty excited about that uh so that that's where we're currently investing in the uk it's much more an expression of the types of business that we find rather than really a um a view on the uk economy as such
0: Okay. I mean, you mentioned there were some consumer staples as well. What would be examples of them?
1: Uh, So a company like Unilever uh, would be a business that's that's listed in the UK and that we favour.
0: Okay. Um, I mean, what are the risks of these companies and what makes them worth the risks?
1: Do you mean UK listed or... Yeah, the UK listed. Yeah. I mean... Well, like any business, there is a risk to investing in the equity of a a company, but we like to minimise it by emphasising the quality and the underlying returns on capital. We don't, I have to say, particularly favour the UK economy on a long-term basis at the moment, and therefore we don't have a substantial risk to the UK economy. And therefore our portfolio isn't particularly taking a view on that. Um, so I guess I'm rejecting, slightly rejecting the premise of the question. You asked me what are the risks to these businesses mm-hmm. in the UK economy. We have very limited exposure okay.
0: to that. I mean, do, do they face, um, I mean, obviously more global facing, what sort of more global risks do they face?
1: Well, I guess the re- the risks that, all companies face at the moment is is what i alluded to really is that we now have a situation where the world economy seems to be slowing somewhat uh, as indicated by the bond market where we've seen you know the spread between shorter term interest rates and longer term interest rates come down substantially that tends to be tends to foreshadow a slowing in the global economy at a time when valuations are relatively full if you look at long-term valuation measures such as Uh, the market capitalization of markets relative to GDP, or the so-called Schiller CAPE, which is a 10-year valuation measure, they all look reasonably full. I guess balanced against that, you also have interest rates, as I mentioned, which are extremely low. And therefore, you can make a relative argument still, I think, for equities relative to debt. But I think that the risk clearly is that you have relatively elevated valuations at a time when underlying global economic activity appears to be slowing. And that keys straight into why we're invested, we think, relatively conservatively at the moment, uh, with a view to being making the portfolio more pro-cyclical or more risk-seeking, but at a time when we think valuations are more attractive at some point in the future.
0: Okay. Obviously, the um, benefits of um, these holdings outweigh the risks, but what would change to make you reduce your exposure to them?
1: To the UK specifically? Yeah. Well, I guess we, we, as I mentioned, we have a number of businesses we'd love to own that would likely be in economies and, and, and markets elsewhere in the world. I mean, notably, in a more stressed environment, uh, currencies outside the US dollar tend to depreciate. And we would like to be allocating capital to those currencies and those economies and those businesses should we get the opportunity to do so. And I, and I mentioned they fall into three basic camps: more cyclical but high quality businesses. Businesses themselves are reliant upon levels and activity in in, in marketplaces and businesses that are exposed to the emerging markets. Paul Pullman, who used to run Unilever, after all, said that you've got to be exposed to emerging markets because that's where all the people are. And and he's he's exactly right by that. But we suspect that there'll be a better opportunity to allocate capital to those areas at some point in the future. So that is likely to mean that our UK weighting specifically might come down a bit. But again, I would sort of reiterate that that doesn't necessarily mean that we're taking view on the the UK economy. It's simply the construction of the portfolios that currently exists and where I suspect it may go in the future.
0: Okay, thank you, James. A really interesting insight into how you scour the world for dividends and a helpful update on Troy Trojan global income. Thanks very much. That brings us to the end of today's interview. But for more interviews with managers of equity income funds, see the website at investorschronicle.co.uk.